And let's turn to Leviticus chapter 6 this evening. On Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we pick things up in Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus being this great instruction manual for uh, the priests, for their uh, leading the nation of Israel in worship. And uh, Moses is at the tail end of uh, giving Aaron and the priests and the, actually the children of Israel God's revelation concerning uh, five of the main uh, sacrifices that would be a part of their worship of the Lord, the uh, uh, peace offering, the uh, uh, fellowship offering or the grain offering, also the burnt offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. Trespass offering or sin offering having to do with unintentional sin. The trespass offering having to do with God's forgiveness even for not only unintentional sin but intentional sin. And we pick him up kind of mid-thought here in chapter 6 verse 1 as he's been laying out this trespass offering and he continues to do so. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor. Now, uh, that is a deliberate sin that someone is doing there. That's not an unintentional uh, sin. Deliberate lying to his neighbor. And here's a variety of lies that God evidently takes note of in the world and uh, lays out that an offering is required for atonement here by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping so something that had been delivered to you to be kept safe they didn't kind of have banks in those days and uh, you say well, it's gone I don't know what happened to it and you uh, put it in a Swiss bank account because they had those way back in, in that time so you, you're, you just flat out lie in order to steal from your neighbor or uh, uh, lying about a pledge or about a robbery or if he has extorted from his neighbor or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it so he's going along a path finds you know four gold coins and he knows they're lost everyone starts to go through the village and say and who you know did anybody find the four gold coins I don't know anything about it I never saw it or anything like that and, and, and lying about it and later they're found out that that's what they they did and then uh, and swear falsely in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what was stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely and uh, and he shall restore its full value of what he lied about a sin regarded add one-fifth or twenty uh, twenty percent more to it and give it to whomever it belongs whoever uh, they were trying to rip off through their lying on the day of his trespass offering and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord a ram without blemish from the flock with your evaluation as a trespass offering to the priest and so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any one of those things which he uh, may have done when he trespasses and so here's the trespass offering you know it's interesting sometimes people have a view of God is that 
He just cranked up this whole uh, universe, put the whole thing into kind of operation, uh, physically speaking, and then now it kind of runs on his own while he's uh, skiing in Colorado or something. And uh, that God is so big and, and he's essentially unengaged in the earth. He doesn't really know what's going on here and that, that kind of thing. So this distant perception of God. No, God is very well aware of what goes on in this world. You look at these prohibitions that he gives. What does that mean? He's seen a lot of stuff. He's heard a lot of conversations. He's heard a lot of lying. He is very current on what is happening in the world, how men and women are sinning, and, uh, and the need that they have when they're willing to repent for the forgiveness of that sin, when ultimately they're busted and they're shamed uh, for, for that sin. He knows what's happening in every single individual life. Um, in, 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 this, in this world. And so uh, these, he lays this thing out, the trespass offering. If a person was guilty of a deliberate sin, he was to make restitution uh, to the person that he had sinned against, uh, the value of whatever he tried to rip the person off of, plus 20%. And uh, so there was to be a penalty, a restitution associated with, uh, with all of that. And so forgiveness from God, and one of the things that the Lord was reinforcing in His people was that forgiveness from God doesn't mean that we can just write that off and now we don't have a responsibility to the people that we have sinned against to make that situation right. And even when we become uh, brand new Christians, we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. Uh, it doesn't mean that the courts dismiss the cases that are against us. Uh, or that people are going to forget the fact that we still owe them $5,000 or whatever it might be. There still needs to be a taking care of business in, in, uh, in our dealings with, with one another. One of the things about restitution uh, also is that it, it produced a, uh, a sign, it was a way of people expressing their true repentance. So a person could say, oh yes, I feel terrible about that, and uh, boy, I'll just never do that again and all. And the priest would come and say, that cost you the value of what you tried to rip this person off for, plus 20%. A truly repentant person who's really sorry about their sin wouldn't even blink at the 20%. Now it's going to dig into their pocket. It's going to mean less maybe food or, or an opportunity to do whatever in the coming year for them. But where there's you know, true genuine sorrow for what the person has done, they're not going to blink at that 20%. They're going to look at it as an opportunity to say, I am serious about my sorrow over what it is that, that I have done here. You remember Zacchaeus in the New Testament, uh, tax collector, chief among the tax collectors, which means grand poobah thief in those days. I mean, they really ripped people off, a very dishonest profession, um, and encouraged by the rules, essentially. When Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus kind of invited himself to lunch at Zacchaeus's house, Zacchaeus became a follower of Jesus. He repented of of his sin and his theft and all and as an evidence of that he kind of goes back under the law of Moses into the law of restitution here and he declared to Jesus look Lord I give half my goods uh, to the poor so he goes way up above the 20% and if I've taken anything from anyone by for 
false accusation, I restore fourfold. Talking about 400%, not uh, 20%. And then Jesus said in light of... Listen, when you get a guy like that that's willing to show his repentance with his money, you've got true repentance. <laughs> and, and so Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. <laughs> Trust me, because he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so only after restitution would his offering uh, in the, under, the, uh, under the law be accepted by God. Now this is all very interesting in the light of Jesus' teaching on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and he reflects this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus declared, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you come to church and you're going to offer something to God, worship to God, offer a material thing to God, and while you're there worshiping, I mean, you're having a great time with God and all, and you, you remember that there's someone who has something against you, someone back home, someone in the neighborhood, some, someone at work, some other place where they have something legitimately against you. You riff you ripped them off. You sinned against them. You did something uh, wrong to them. Jesus' instruction was, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. I mean, even abandon the, the worship service. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is saying that if we're coming to church, worship God. And there's anyone out there, I mean, here we are, we're raising up hands and worshiping, and having a good time and all of that, enjoying the Lord in these things. But God says, if you know there is someone legitimately out there that is hurt and stumbled by the sin that you have committed against them, he said, then we're not to go on about our lives and just forget it and say, oh, well, they'll just have to get over it and all we're supposed to leave our worship of, of the Lord in this outward kind of a way, go worship Him in making things right with that other person. God cannot enjoy our gifts and our worship when He sees the big picture, sees what's happening in church, and then He sees all these other casualties, personal casualties in our life and another part of our life. He says, go clean that up and take care of that. That will bring me as much pleasure as the gift. Then I can enjoy the gift and, and the praise and the worship and whatever you offer to me in, in a church uh, service. So the necessity of, of that, that restitution. Going to a person saying, I was wrong. I, I sinned against you there. I do feel terrible about it. I ask for your forgiveness for that and I want to make restitution in the situation. How can we make this right? So this is not a root of bitterness for you for the rest of your Christian life. I think, I think it must be that from the vantage point of God and uh, Jesus' vantage point, when they look, uh, uh, the Father and Son, look out in the human condition and, and they see how many casualties there are uh, by, by sin that is never addressed and taken care of. People just say, well, I have to get over it and I'm just going to move forward and it's all under the blood. And, and, and God sees... The, the, how many people are tripped up and stumbled over that and uh, they know the big picture on that and, and, and say, listen, go and take uh, care of, of that. And it's very, very heavy, very intense what, what Jesus says, even in the New Testament that, that, uh, that we're supposed to do. God knows the, the damage that's, that's done there and uh, if we're guilty, we're to take care of it. So that was the trespass offering. The trespass offering, I think it did 
A couple of things. Number one, it was a deterrent to sin. You're going to sin and say, wow, if, uh, if, I, if I get caught in this, on top of hurting God and, and ruining my Christian witness, but the, the, the paying the restitution was to be a deterrence where I'd say, uh, if, I, if, the, if, if I get caught on this thing, it's going to cost me something. So it was, it was designed to slow me down for committing sin. And then the second thing about restitution is it would heal the wounds of the person that had been sinned against. So here comes the reimbursement plus 20 cent, uh, 20%, and, and then that person could look and say, that's just, that's right, that's more than right, and I can move forward in my Christian walk. Uh, not an, I'm talking about New Testament, we're not under the Old Testament. But I can move forward in my relationship with God and uh, leave that situation to the Lord. And that's how the Lord wanted that kind of thing to be handled. Then the Lord... Then in the verse 9, uh, Moses gives instruction to the priests uh, concerning uh, the burnt offering. Or verse 8, he begins all of this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and then notice in verse 9, Command Aaron and his sons saying. Now what he's going to repeat now through this particular section of, of um, uh, Leviticus here are things that we've already looked at in chapters uh, 1 through 5. But there's one major difference. In chapters 1 through 5, he has, Moses has spoken all of this to the children of Israel. Now he's going to co command these things to Aaron, who is the high priest, and all to, also to his uh, sons. And, uh, and so there's, we're going to see a lot of repetition here. Now, no, personally, in the book of Leviticus, I'm never troubled by uh, the repetition. And uh, again, remember it's an instruction manual for the priest to lead the nation in the worship of God. And sometimes, I don't know if you've ever experienced this in life, sometimes more instruction is better than not enough uh, instruction and all. Uh, for instance, some, sometimes people can look at this as a little bit tedious. You know, you have... Um, Let's say you're, you're an electrician and somebody hands you an, a, a code book for an electrician. Well, the average person would look at it and go, boring, you know, I mean, wow, who cares? Just make sure my lights work. Uh, but the person that actually has to make all of that happen, you know, there's a lot of work behind what looks so easy, you know. Uh, they appreciate the detailed instructions. I, and I think I've mentioned it before. I don't know, how many of you have ever put something together that you purchased with poor instructions and it's been a source of frustration? Just a quick show of hands here on this. Yes, all right, almost a universal experience. For the rest of you, you were smart enough to pay the $35 to have the people at the store <laughs> put it together for you. And, but, you know, sometimes you get those instructions, and if it's like, okay, who writes these? The guy that wrote this is a, is a guy that has put 300 of these together and do it in his sleep. So he just gives you the bare minimum. What do I do with these 16 extra bolts here? I know they're important. There's only 40 bolts in the whole swing set. So I, I know I've got a problem here. So the instruction, they would have been very, very appreciative of it. Because they look and say, okay, now on what day are we supposed to, and then how much on all of this? And so 
since we're New Testament priests, I mean, we can uh, gain, uh, it's of some interest to us uh, anyway. So, he says, and he begins now in this reiteration of things with the burnt offering. This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar, the altar of, of burnt off, uh, of uh, the brazen altar for where all the sacrifices were offered and burned. It shall be uh, on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it so now we're told that that fire on the brazen altar was kept burning day and night probably let the coals go down a little bit and then and then re-add fire uh, fuel in the morning but that fire was always to be burning we'll talk about that a little bit later and the priest shall put his uh, on his linen garment and uh, his linen trousers uh, he shall have put on his body take up the ashes that are left over of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar and he shall put them beside the altar so this is interesting a tremendous detail uh, so God says when you even deal with the ashes that are left over from the burnt offering which was a, a consecration offering and communicating my whole commitment to God he said I want you to make sure that you're wearing the linen garment and the linen trou trousers why would he say that because they are going to be performing these ordinances before the Lord among the children of Israel in surrounded by paganism in all directions and, and the worship of the pagan gods was uh, uh, involved all kinds of uh, immorality and immodesty. And I mean just immoral acts even performed right where the sacrifices were being offered. God comes in and says, we are not like that. Uh, we are so modest and concerned about modesty as my people that even to remove the ashes I want you to be wearing a coat and I want you to be wearing uh, kind of the, the long the linen trousers that he had spoken about earlier uh, in the book and so again as New Testament priests uh, those who represent uh, the Lord before the people of this world were to dress modestly, not like the pagan culture around us. And then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside of the camp to a clean place. So he was to scoop up all of the ashes and all with these garments, but he was not then to wear those garments off of the premises of the tabernacle to get rid of the ashes in a ceremonially clean place. In other words, these clothes that he, w he was wearing were set aside for God, the service of God. There was not to be a mixing between uh, th those items and, and what was happening at the tabernacle. He, he couldn't wear them home from work. He couldn't wear them down to Walmart or something like that. There was this, to be this clear delineation between this is where this gets used and it doesn't get used in, in the normal settings in life. Now remember, uh, kind of building a little foundation for what we'll get to a little bit later on this. Remember, the theme of the book of Leviticus is what? Holiness. It's holiness. So all of this is intended to drive home the lesson of holiness among God's people, even in the details uh, of their life and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it it shall not be put out and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it and he shall burn on it the fat 
of the peace offerings. The fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. And so uh, this reiteration of things related to the burnt offering. Now he moves on to the grain offering. This is the law of the grain offering. Grain was a thanksgiving offering to God. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take it from his hand... uh, uh, from it his handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord and the remainder of it Aaron and his sons shall eat with unleavened bread it shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting they shall eat it it shall not be baked with leaven I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire it is most holy like the sin offering and the trespass offering all the males among the children of Aaron may eat it it shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord everyone who touches them must be holy and the Lord spoke to Moses saying this is the offering of Aaron and his sons which they shall offer to the Lord beginning on the day when he is anointed one-tenth of an ephah two quarts of fine flour as a daily grain offering this is what the priests were to offer half of it or one quart in the morning and half of it in the evening and it shall be made in a pan with oil when it is mixed you shall bring it in the baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord the priest from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall offer it it is a statute forever to the Lord it shall be wholly burned for every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned it shall not be eaten and so we've already spoken about uh, the symbolism of all of this related to Jesus also related to our lives when we looked at chapter 2 so I refer anyone that's new with us here this evening to uh, what I think is worthwhile in looking at it at chapter 2 but not to repeat it every time we hit it now in the scriptures now in chapter tw- in verse 24 he picks up the instruction no longer to the children of Israel in general but now being spoken to Aaron and his sons and the Lord uh, concerning the sin offering and the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to Aaron and to his sons saying this is the law of the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering is killed the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord it is most holy the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it in a holy place it shall be eaten in the court in the court of the tabernacle of meeting everyone who touches its flesh must be holy and when its blood is sprinkled on any garment you shall wash that uh, on which it is sprinkled in a holy place and so uh, the uh, again this is something that we looked at in chapter 4 but I want to uh, address just a couple of things here verse 27 when the garment that had the blood of the sin offering sprinkled on it to be washed in in a holy place so any any blood from the sin sacrifice that landed on a garment of of the priest that was involved in in the offering of that that sacrifice that garment had to be washed 
um, and, and cleansed of its blood. Not be, uh, because it was unclean or dirty and you didn't want to wear something dirty out in public, but because that garment was sanctified to God, the blood from the sin offering belonged to God, and thus it was holy. And so, because it was holy, it wasn't to be casually introduced into ordinary life, where you would just take it out into the regular mainstream of, of life. Because what that would produce in people's minds is a, um, they would begin to think that you can mix the holy and the unholy and that, that God will kind of, um, what God's doing is he's holding a hard line on holiness in, in all of this. Even right down to these, these nitty gritty kind of, of uh, details. One of the things, for instance, um, the Bible uses the word profane in some places. Let's see if I can make it clear in this way. Uh, the word profane. Uh, when we hear the word profane, we think of somebody who's extraordinarily, you know, obscene or something like that. But that's not how it's used in the, in the Bible. When, when God uses the word profane, it simply means to be common. It spoke about when you would be in the tabernacle area or in the courtyard of the tabernacle and you would walk outside of that curtain out into the regular world, one inch outside of that curtain, that was profane. That was common. That was the world. And so something that was profane was something that wasn't holy. It wasn't set aside uh, to God. And, and so what God was saying is, I don't want you people to become like the world. And I'm going to set up these kind of things in your life that make you realize that how we do things in my kingdom, how we treat holiness, how we conduct ourselves, how we worship God is something entirely different from the way that the world operates. That's what he's trying to get through to the people and reinforce in them. Now, tremendous lesson actually related to today where the great kind of uh, idea literally for the last 15 years in the body of Christ is that you become like the world to reach the world. You become profane to reach the profane. God doesn't work that way. We are to be a holy people. We are to be a different people. Not in terms of washing blood out of our clothes or these kind of things, pots and pans as we're going to see in a moment. But in, in terms of our lives, every definition of holiness you run through Jesus. He is the definition of holiness. You don't have to get a lamb and put them over your shoulder or anything like that. But when you read Jesus' life, sometimes people talk about holiness, you immediately think of certain hairstyles or certain clothing or makeup or no makeup or this or that. These things that have kind of muddied the water of, of what true holiness is. Jesus is holy. That's a holy life. And, uh, and that's the life that we're to live no matter what anybody else is living in the world. Then what God can do is when people get sick of being a casualty of the world out there and they wake up one morning and say, I am done with this. Is there anything different happening in the world? They can look at the body of Christ, look at the church and say, that's different. I think I'll go over there and see what they're about. But if the church has become like the world, now people have no alternative, no place to go, no wholly different, non-profane place to go. And so this is important even, uh, even today. And the flesh, verse 19, that touches anything uh, shall not be eaten. Um, let's see if I've got the right 
from the gospel. And he speaks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9 and in terms of people that God has called to give their life over that way, that God doesn't have a problem, Old Testament, New Testament, and their needs being provided. They don't need to become rich. They don't need jets or anything like that. But, but they should have their needs met, and God has designed it into uh, his way. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So he moves on now to the peace offerings. We looked at this in chapter 3, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for, a thanks, uh, for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with the oil. Now this is something a little different from chapter 3 in that the burnt offering was actually an animal sacrifice but here in chapter 7 we learn that there was also this grain uh, or, or cakes or uh, bread offered with it also. Beside the cakes as his offering he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering and from it he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord it shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering so part of his kind of payment for that was he got one of those uh, cakes uh, of, of unleavened bread and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering, uh, this, this burnt offering, if someone offered it voluntarily or as a vow, then it shall be eaten the same day that he offers the sacrifice, but on the next day the remainder of it, sh of it also may be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned by fire. Now the peace offering, remember, had the unique characteristic of a uh, sacrifice being made to God, God then returning a portion of that sacrifice to the, the worshiper and also to the priest so all three of them would eat so to speak from the same animal symbolizing sharing in a common meal and uh, so when the portion would be returned back to the worshiper and the priest they had to eat it uh, ideally on the first day and then uh, they could eat it on the second day but on the third day it was out it was to be burned at that point now uh, we understand that uh, certainly there's a, a health issue in all of this, no refrigeration in those days, and given kind of the heat, the climate in, in which they're in and all, uh, meat is not going to hold for too long before it's going to be uh, deadly for people. So it was safe to eat the first day, they could do that, stretch it into the second day, but then the third day uh, it had to be burnt. Now why would, why would they have to burn even the leftovers of, of that um, of that peace offering as it was offered there because it was holy it had been offered to God to God so again the emphasis of holiness you couldn't say oh we got some scraps left over and we got little Fifi the French poodle our pet back home that we got when we journeyed up into France uh, you know out of the Red Sea area and uh, so we're going to take that home God said no you either eat that in fellowship with me or you burn it because that's holy now there can be some symbolism here related to our own lives 
as, as it talks about the one day, the second day, and then the third day is out and all, that we, that, uh, we are in our worship at our altar, the peace, the peace offering of our altar is Jesus upon the cross, that uh, that uh, worship that we give to the Lord, that uh, enjoyment that we have with Him, the connection that we have with Him, is, is never to, uh, it is to be, it, we're to stay close to that altar that He was sacrificed on, on a daily basis, can stretch into a second day, never to stretch into a third day. We're never to be three days removed from intimacy with, with God, with our, with our offering. And then, uh, he said, and if any of the flesh, verse 18, of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted. So if people disobey, nor shall it be imputed to him, it shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats of it shall bear his guilt. So to in, uh, engage in disobeying this, God said, it appears that it meant excommunication. You would be removed from among the camp of the children of Israel. The flesh that touches uh, any unclean thing shall not be eaten. Uh, it shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. So let's say you've got this uh, sacrifice that you've brought and you've offered to the Lord and it's ceremonially clean. It's everything's right. Only the, the right people have touched it and all. If that sacrifice or that meat comes into contact with something that's ceremonially unclean, the impure defiled the pure. And, and God now said, it's all impure to me. I, I don't want it. If it's touched the unclean, then, then it's, it, it's, it's no good. It's been defiled. It's kind of like this. You have uh, just this last week or so, they're talking about the staph infections and how many people are dying and catching staph infections in the hospitals and all. Those of you who are doctors and nurses, don't tell me how bad it is at this point. But um, I know it's bad enough because of how many people I know pick up staph infections in hospitals. But, but uh, the, how much work is done to produce a sterile environment in an operating room, in a surgical center? And a tremendous effort. And when some, you've got everything sterilized, everything's clean, and something unsterilized comes into contact with it, it's been everything's unsterilized, and you just have to start over again. So what God is saying, what's true of a surgical center uh, for us today, is true related to what He was doing there in in the tabernacle. Uh, it, it's, it is it is in a spiritual sense that any kind of defilement that you bring into what I'm about, it ruins everything for me. Again, the emphasis uh, upon, upon holiness. If people work so hard to produce a sterile environment for physical surgery, and God bless them in doing that, but God says we ought to work equally hard for there to be a sterile or a holy uh, environment and attitude among my people and surrounding the worship of me. There should be just as great an effort, even a greater effort, uh, than, uh, than they do for it. But if the person, verse 20, who eats the flesh of the sacrifice... Of, this, uh, of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people, excommunicated. And moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, and later in chapters 11 through 15, we're going to talk, find out what ceremonial uncleanness is, but... Uh, we, um, 
He's talking about it at this point. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or any abominable unclean thing, or who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, um, and who eats that flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. D- disobedience to this resulted in at least excommunication excommunic- uh, from among God's people. God just wasn't going to tolerate uh, people disregarding what was happening at the tabernacle and, and holiness in the worship of him. You see, you're going to force me to choose between keeping this holy and your disobedience. God says, that's an easy call for me. Bye! And out they go. He wasn't going to fight with that kind of, of uh, um, uh, disregard for holiness among uh, even his people. And, of course, there's excommunication that occurs today to protect the holiness of, of the body of Christ. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. So now he comes back to the children of Israel. Speaking to them, you shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat. So there go the shawarmas, if you've ever seen how they make those. But anyway, we won't get into it. And the fat of the animal that dies. uh, So no eating of of any kind of fat. It was forbidden. Again, as we've seen, tremendous uh, health issues on that. Fat isn't good for us. Amazing. God's talking about this 3,500 years ago. Don't just sit down and eat a whole bunch of fat. I remember one time uh, watching a person and they would they would cut the meat out of the, the steak and leave the steak and eat all the fat. Now what, what if you did that in a family? You say, wow, why does everybody in our family die at 22? You know, before they could ever find out what was going on and all. So God's like heading off trouble for us. So um, here, no eating of the fat. God has no cholesterol problems. So he says, you give that to me, and, uh, and I think my triglycerides are right, and we'll be fine. You know I'm an older person, right, when you know these kind of words. So, uh, and the fat of an animal that dies naturally... The fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in, in, in any other way, but you shall no, by no means eat it. So if you had the fat of an animal that was sacrificed or you found roadkill or you found something dead out in the field or something and, and you say, well, what can we do with the fat? You could sell it to Gentiles because they'd eat anything. Uh, or, and they knew how to use it too. Or even the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles typically wouldn't eat something that was rotten or whatever. But you could use fat for fuel, uh, for lighting. You could, they would use fat to soften leather to make it more supple. So there were other uses for fat. He said, just don't, just don't eat it. Use it for these other things. For whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. He's just not tolerating any kind of disobedience or disregarding uh, on this. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether bird or beast. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And so uh, no Jew uh, was to uh, obviously drink any blood or partake of it like that, but he wasn't uh, really talking about that. What he's referring to is, is eating the meat of an animal that hadn't been bled when it was killed. And so you could sometimes uh, you know, strangle an animal or whatever. And some, some Gentile 
cultures did that, do that, where the animal is killed, where the blood stays in, in the muscle, it stays in the animal, so that you get kind of a, we call it juicier, a bloodier kind of cut of the meat and all. But the Jews, they had to bleed the animals, and I think we do a lot of bleeding of our animals here because of our Jewish-slash-Christian heritage in the United States of America. So they, the, the, the animal had to be bled. You couldn't eat meat from an animal that hadn't been uh, properly uh, bled and, and wasn't uh, kosher. Now, the New Testament application about uh, all of this, First Church Council, uh, recorded in Acts chapter 15, uh, they ruled regarding the relationship between the Gentile church and, and the law of Moses that uh, they, they declared, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden, speaking to the Gentile saints, than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, which is animals that hadn't been bled properly, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you do well, farewell. And it was necessary in the early church to speak to the Gentiles about these issues of, of eating blood and eating meat like this or eating uh, meat that was associated with idolatry, sexual immorality, because these things were prevalent in the, Jewish, in the Gentile culture in that part of the world in, in those, those days. And so basically they said, listen, for the sake of the Jewish brethren and the unite, unity of the body of Christ, this is way too big of a hurdle for them to get over. Don't do it. Don't eat blood and don't eat animals that haven't been properly bled. And so that's, that's for us. We, we, should not, we should not eat meat or these kinds of things where we're eating kind of clotted blood and this kind of stuff. You ever see that where they have those... Sometimes you can, go, you can go to kind of an ethnic delicatessen in a large city uh, or travel someplace. Sometimes you go different parts of the world, especially in Europe. Boy, do they eat every part of every animal and charge you a fortune for it. Lamb eye pie or whatever. I mean, they just got... And then they tell you right in the title, you know, pig guts uh, quiche or something. I mean, they've got, they use every kind of thing and people line up to buy it. You see these loaves, you know, like the salami and those things and all, and then it's, it's like, um, you know, cow gut uh, loaf. And uh, it's probably delicious. But it's got all these, these parts in it and that, that kind of thing. And so we, we need to, sometimes they take the, the blood, they'll put it in kind of a, a membrane, like an intestine kind of thing that's been washed, like that helps me. And they'll, and they'll put the blood in there, they'll let it clot and coagulate, and then they sell that and you fry that and you eat that. Now it's kind of, it always reminds me, when we take um, trips to Israel, the last few times, uh, because British Air is giving the best rate for airfare the last few years, we always fly through London. And uh, so, because it's a hub place there, we offer a three-day England extension because you're there and it's cheap to do that for whoever wants to do that. And so one of the days we go out into the Cotswolds in the countryside and, go, and typically go to one of the inns there. And, and in the morning, they serve everyone a traditional English breakfast which is fabulous. Most people are ready for some bacon uh, or something like that or some ham after having been in Israel for a couple of weeks. So Gentiles that we are by and large. So they, they come out and they serve this traditional uh, English breakfast and then right there on the side of the plate is this black 
glob of something. It looks like a pudding or something like that. And you, and you look down at it, you know, and you think, wow, I mean, the, the baked beans are so good and the sausage is so good and the ham, the bacon is so good and the eggs and the toast and the tea and everything. This must be delicious too. But being the cautious person that you are, you ask the waitress, um, what is this black mass that's sitting uh, right here? And they'll say, oh, that's black pudding. Ah, okay. Could you elaborate a little bit on what black pudding is? And they say, oh, it's fried pig's blood. Why, thank you. That's the clarification I was looking for. <laughs> Could I have a new plate, uh, by the way, <laughs> related to... So, it's, it's fun to... I didn't need a prohibition in the Word of God not to eat it. But sometimes I have sat at a table and not said anything to others... Uh, even Christians who are sitting down trying to figure out what in the world that is. Listen, not all lessons uh, learned in life are learned the easy way, and I'm not going to protect people. Usually at that particular point, we're on the Israel, uh, of the Israel trip, we're on the England extension, I'm off duty. I'm not looking out for these people on every kind of uh, thing that, that happens. So that you have to stay away from this. You get excommunicated or worse for violating it. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord. The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's son, Aaron's and his son. So again, the portions that were to go to the priest. Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings and he, sh he among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part for the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. And this is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord on the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. And so he probably does this uh, telling the children of Israel, this is the portion that the priests are to get from you. Don't ever change this ordinance because he could kind of sense that the day would come where they say, boy, we're sure giving a lot to those priests, you know, and uh, begin to cut back. God says, no, I'm, there's a reason I'm giving them, this to them. It keeps them from corruption, and, uh, and it's, it's a statute forever. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the sin offering, the trespass uh, offering, the consecrations, and the sacrifice of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
it. We'll do it. We'll do it. <laughs> chapter 8. It's basically reading it. Now, here's what you've got going on in chapter 8. All of this instruction. Remember when God gave the instruction to the children of Israel for the building of the furnishings for the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself? Well, he gave them all those directions, but then the day came when they had to actually do it. They had to build it. So now God has given the priests all the instructions about the priesthood, the offerings, the clothes that they're to wear, the anointing oil, all this stuff. So now they need to do this. He's going to establish the priesthood. So you've got this problem here in that God has established this entire worship system based upon sacrifice, but the people couldn't offer the sacrifices on their own. They needed a priest to do it. So God says, now's the time to formally establish the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. That's what's happening here. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil. All of this we've looked at in the book of, of Exodus. The anointing oil, a bull is a sin offering, two rams and a basket of unleavened bread. And gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So this uh, the, the ordaining of the priests uh, to now uh, take their position as the spiritual leaders or kind of mediators as priests in the nation of Israel was to be a public thing to be witnessed by all of the people. Very serious. And so the Lord did, Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord commanded to be done. And then Moses brought Aaron and his sons, washed them with water there at the bronze laver, and uh, uh, washed them there, uh, as, as again Exodus had, had declared would uh, be the case. The they were washed probably the entirety of their bodies at this particular point, though they were wearing garments, uh, but washed from head to toe. From this point on, they will only wash their hands and their feet in the, in the bronze laver. But here, it's, it's a whole body wash. It speaks of ceremonial cleansing, holiness before the people. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash. So these are the, the garments that the high priest would wear that would identify him as the high priest. Clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, and he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. And then he put the breastplate on him, and he put the urim and the thummim in the breastplate, and he put the turban on his head, also on the turban, and on its front. He put the golden plate, the golden, holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so very impressive now to see Aaron dressed in, in uh, this, uh, these things that would identify him as the high priest. But I'll tell you, it, it plays very much a second fiddle to what you and I are able to wear as New Testament priests, which is the righteousness of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of, of Christ. Nothing is superior in the Old Testament to the New Covenant. And Moses took the anointing oil. And he anointed the tabernacle, and all that was in it consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar with all its utensils, and the laver and its base to consecrate them. Then he poured some, he sprinkled it on everything else, he poured some of the anointing oil on, the head, on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, not sprinkled on him, but poured upon him, all a picture of Jesus, our high priest, 
priest when he was there being water baptized at the Jordan River came up out of the water the Holy Spirit came upon him poured upon him to begin his public ministry and so the imagery of it even there in the Old Testament and then Moses brought Aaron's sons put their garments on them their tunics girded them with sashes puts hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses and then he brought the bull for the sin offering that were necessary uh, for the priests and then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering and Moses killed it so it's up to this point Moses is still killing the animals it hasn't been turned over to Aaron uh, yet so here is is um, the priest Aaron the high priest before he can even deal with the people he needs to have a sin offering offered for his own sin Every single time that that happened, it was reinforced in his mind as a priest that he was a sinner dealing with sinners. The, uh, The greatest of God's people, no matter who they are, they are at best one sinner ministering to other sinners. It's only Jesus as the great high priest who comes in as the sinless one that now ministers to us. No one else has any reason for pride in in their service to the Lord. Now you think about Aaron. This is all grace, isn't it? Aaron, uh, the golden calf, Aaron on things. And uh, so here is this this, uh, uh, calf, so to speak, being sacrificed in order for him uh, is a recognition of his sinfulness. He's a sinful man ministering to sinful people in order to keep him humble, probably reminded him of the event. And... uh, uh, it, it, but it's, it's true of all of us who serve the Lord. So Moses killed it, and he took the blood and put some on, uh, some on the horns of the altar all around with his finger, and he purified the altar. And he poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Then he took all of the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull, its hide, its flesh, its offal, he burned with fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the sin offering. And then he brought the ram as the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses killed it. Then he sprinkled the blood all around the altar. He cut the ram in pieces, and Moses burned the head, the pieces, and the fat. Then he washed the entrails and the legs in water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then he brought the second ram, the ram of consecration. And then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. All of this we've looked at uh, previously and Moses killed it also he took some of the blood put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear and the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot and what that symbolized was that uh, he was his life as a high priest or as a priest was uh, set aside for God's use from head to toe his whole life his ear was given over to the voice of God his hands were to be given over to the work of God his feet were to be given over to the ways of God and this was just reinforced in a physical way it's really very beautiful isn't it if you woke up in the morning and someone 
did something like that just to remind you. You know, we have the Holy Spirit to do that. But it's a good reminder. And then he brought Aaron's sons. And Moses put some of the blood then on the tips of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood all around the altar. And then he took the fat and the fat tail, all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and their fat and the right thigh. And from the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, a cake of bread anointed with oil and one wafer, and he put them on the fat uh, and on the right thigh. And he put all these in Aaron's hands and in his son's hands and they waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands, burned them on the altar, on the burnt offering. They were consecration offerings for a sweet aroma. That was an offering made by fire to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it as a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' part of the ram of consecration as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood that was on the altar, sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and the garments of his sons with him. Without this anointing of oil and blood without the anointing of the Holy Spirit these were just going to be men with really fancy clothes on but it's the oil and it's the same thing with our lives it is only the application of the sacrifice of Jesus to our lives by becoming saved then the application of the Holy Spirit to our lives that allows us to be what God has called us to be as New Testament priests and in our time in human history. And uh, then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of consecration offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. Whatever remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire. And you shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days, until the days of your consecration are ended, for seven days uh, he shall consecrate you. And so they performed all of these things in one day, and then for seven more days after that, uh, uh, they, they were to stay within the area of, of the tabernacle. The, that length of time, the seven days, a total of eight days, what that would do is confirm to the people the importance of what has just happened, the establishing of the Aaronic priesthood, a way to have fellowship with God, even by means of human sacrifice, was something no one else had in the Old Testament. So it spoke to them of the importance of it. The number seven is, biblically, is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. Seven days in a week, seven colors in the rainbow, etc. So what this spoke of, even in terms of the number of days that all of this was going on, it spoke of the priest's complete uh, sanctification or consecration to the Lord. I think it's very, very beautiful. I like the detail of the Lord in all of this. And uh, therefore, uh, um, 
And as was done this day, so the Lord has commanded to do, to make atonement for you. Therefore you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you may not die. For so I have been, uh, so I have been commanded. So under penalty of death not to leave during that time. And so beautiful here, Aaron and his sons did all that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, completely obedient to him, which then allows the Lord to bless them in a way that he wanted to bless them, to publicly bless them. And then we get into that in uh, chapter 9 next week. If the worship team come forward, uh, that would be great. I'd like to just uh, uh, spend a, a little bit of time before we close this evening just worshiping the Lord. I mean, you, we go through all of this and it's, it's technical and people can sometimes wonder, you know, especially if I'm reading through it and not going into the detail like before, what does this mean? And, and, and then I think it's important to come aside and spend a little time just worshiping Jesus, who is, I mean, unique in human history, both the high priest and the sacrifice.